This morning we're in back in First Corinthians. First Corinthians one twenty-five and twenty-six. And the title of the sermon, as you can see, God does things his way. And while we're still on this slide, I want to read the text from the ESV, and then we'll get into more detail as we go through it. 1 Corinthians 1, 25-26, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord for revealing things that we would never would have known and using your means to accomplish your purposes to your glory. May we understand what you've said. We ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, as we go into this text, we need to remember Paul's use of irony. I mentioned this when I first started teaching. If somebody's using irony and you take it literally, you get the exact opposite message. And we see that happen often. We have to be able to know if somebody means something ironically or literally. Ironically means, well, let's say you step outside here on the black uh, asphalt, and it's, I don't know what it is today, pushing 100 or whatever. Say, boy, I'm sure glad it's cool and I dress for it. I'm wearing a jacket here. Now, would you mean it's a cold day, or are you being ironic? You're being ironic, and people would know that. But in the Bible, sometimes when irony is used, future readers and interpreters take the ironic literally when it's meant to be irony, and they get the wrong idea. Now, some people speak ironically so often, you have to be careful before you react, because you have to think, now, do they mean that literally or ironically? But in this case, we, we're pretty clear about Paul's irony. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. And so God, as I say on this slide, is not foolish or weak. Christians know that. The ultimate wisdom is God's wisdom. And we've seen that in Eric's teaching from Proverbs. And we see that in the Psalms. The ultimate wisdom is the fear of God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the ultimate power that created the entire universe out of nothing is God. So God is not foolish. God is not weak. But he used means that he chose, he ordained, that humans consider foolish or weak why would God use a crucified Jewish Messiah that's a scandal to the Jews and considered folly and I pointed that out in a previous sermon the word for folly we could use in English moronic or uh, so on to the Gentiles but to those who are the called it's the power of God why use means that people do not like? Let me read the context. As Bear with me as I get everyone up to speed. And I'm going to read 
1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 24. So we get the whole context if you're just new and coming and hearing this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Applied answer, yes. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles' foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's the context. We preach on all of that. Given that context, we did talk about the foolish scandal that God used to save us dead sinners. And I also mentioned last week that suggesting that church, hymns, music, preaching, everything needs to sound some, like something people want to hear as far as the message. If we do that, we're not going to preach the cross. We're not going to talk about the blood atonement. And the reason this is so important is that the cross now is a piece of jewelry. I'm not telling you you can't have a cross, but what it means to religious consumers is not what it meant back then. It was horrible. Nobody would want that. Somebody said it would be like having uh, an electric chair turn into a piece of jewelry and wearing it if you did it back then. Now, would anybody do that? Well, maybe somebody that's got a really sick sense of humor, but normally we wouldn't do that. So let me give you a further review. Last week, we discussed the cross as a foolish scandal. The message that must be preached is what God chose to use in his eternal plan to save those who believe by his grace through his means. What is the means God uses? Preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the terms by which God has called people to repent and believe the gospel. Now let's go to the next verse, first part of it. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Now, I'll read it here from the ESV, and then we'll comment on the Greek. For consider your calling brothers. Now, it's talking brethren here, by the way, means believers, male and female. And consider, in the Greek, blepete is in the imperative. So it's telling believers to look at, consider, reflect on your calling. What calling is, ta- is he talking about? The effectual call. The fact that those who believe have been called out of darkness into light. So if you think about that and reflect on it, 
And the church consists of those who've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And you consider it, what do you find out? We find out that God, in his sovereign wisdom, saves all sorts of people. We find out that our previous status as lost sinners doesn't determine who God saves, but faith through the means God has given, the message preached, the gospel, is what's determinative. And that faith is a gift from God. But we need to preach the gospel. I mentioned at Sunday school, it's very interesting how Eric will have something to share. And it really helps make unity to what we're saying here. I mentioned when I was driving off to a seminary class and heard on the Christian radio the announcer when Bob Dylan was sort of converted. Some of you all don't remember that. And the announcer said, well, the Lord caught a big fish. Well, it wasn't long before that passed. But here's the point. When it comes to the calling of God, are there big fish? No. There's dead sinners made alive by grace. So the point that Paul is making when we look at, look at who really loves the gospel. It's unpredictable ahead of time. After the fact, what do we find out? A lot of different kind of people. A lot of different kind of people. Not many, we'll see in a, in a bit, are nobility, but some. In fact, many. The person being saved is the one that has nothing going for whoever they may be. And we all think we have something going for us, but we don't. There are no big fish, little fish, all different kind of fish. There are only dead sinners. And so salvation, I have a statement I wrote in my notes here. Salvation is not self-improvement, but God rescuing sinners by grace alone. One of the most damaging things in it, I saw this so much when it came into the seminary where I went, is turning Christianity into a self-help religion. How can life be more comfortable? How can things be better? I'm not against being better or having air conditioning, which is not very strong right now here, but that's okay. Uh, Who am I to complain? It was over 100 when we got married, and there was no air conditioning. But the next day, it was in the 50s, so it was better. That's uh, Well, I was Iowa. Minnesota can be like that, too. But the fact is, self-improvement doesn't change anything other than the dead sinner is more comfortable. Redemption changes everything. Rescue, forgiveness of sins, relationship with God, the promise of eternal life. That's what it's like, not just an enticing message that sounds good to dead sinners. Consider your calling. Well, what we learn is God didn't go around looking for who might make a good Christian. Nobody does. God makes Christians. We don't. A Christian is somebody who's been rescued. 
So here, the calling of you in the Greek with the definite article is the same as in verse 24. And it means the ones who God saved. What we learn confirms what Paul has made clear in the previous paragraph. I read that to you. The called Jews, Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, I want to quote something uh, eventually here. In fact, I'm going to do it right here, and then we'll make that a segue. Let's stay on this slide. In the early church history, pagans mocked Christianity because they noticed there was an awful lot of nobodies who came to Christ. So let me quote that, and then we'll go to the next slide, but let's stay here for now. I'm quoting uh, Gordon Fee mentioning this. There was a guy named Celsus, by the way, who mocked Christians. And I'm going to quote Fee's quote of him. Fee, hence more than a century later, the antagonist Celsus sneered. Now, this is the Celsus talking about Christians. Their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities, Celsus says about Christians, are thought by us to be evils. For as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him become boldly. Continuing, by the fact that they themselves admit, this is Celsus talking about Christians, by the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God. Notice what they said. They admit that these people are worthy of the God. They, says Celsus, show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and children, unquote, the pagans talking about Christians. So Paul says, consider your calling. The pagans obviously don't understand grace or the gospel. Fee comments on Celsus. But sociology is not Paul's concern. His is theological. And he is capitalizing on the less than pretentious social standing of the majority. Which at the same time may have had philosophical overtones to make his point. What Celsus saw is the shame of Christianity, says Fee, Paul saw as his greater glory. The greater glory is that God saves all types of persons, including nobility or rich or poor or whoever, because that God is bringing glory to his name Let's, let's go to the next slide. I have a few more comments on this. Now, many of you, that is, as you look back then, Corinth, at the calling that they had through the gospel, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That doesn't mean none. Not many. I thought that was kind of ironic. I was looking at the Greek. Who poloi is not many. In English, we take this uh, hoi polloi. Have you ever heard that used in English? The masses. Hoopoloi is not many. Hoi polloi, the masses. 
Christians, not many, but God is so good. God is so good. Two other scholars, Camp and Rosner, say this, in Christ Jesus, our identity and status are inverted and radically redefined. If only a few are impressive by human standards, everyone has the same enviable enviable status before God. What's that? Rescued, redeemed, washed, cleansed, saved, given the promises of God, and so forth. It's true for every Christian. I honestly have a very heavy burden that somehow the church could be defined biblically and not allow church history to tell us what the church means. Scripture alone tells us that. Now, there were a lot of different people who were of high social standard. They were saved, but there were many others. Let me again quote these scholars. In fact, evidence points to the presence of some Christians in Corinth, which meet with means and influence. These include office holders, Crispus, Erastus, heads of significant households, Christmas, Stephanus, those capable of service to Paul or others with a supposed, supposed presupposed measure of wealth, Gaius, Titius Justus, and those who travel for business purposes as merchants, Aquila and Priscilla, and so forth, Chloe, Phoebe, Erastus, Stephanus. God used many people. Being rich doesn't exclude you. Being poor doesn't exclude you. But neither does it commend you. I'm going to cover a little bit of this just off the cuff here because I remember studying church history. Anything that God ever did, man will figure out how to turn it into works. And so they read Jesus, blessed are the poor, so people took oaths of poverty. That'll do it. I know how I'll be blessed. I'll take an oath of poverty. Well, you can do that. Or others are are trying to circumvent the gospel by some kind of works. But those God saves are those that he chose and redeemed through the gospel. Let's go to this reversal. I want to show you the theme here. Not many wise... Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. That all comes from verse 26. This is a preview of in a few weeks. God chose the foolish, verse 27. God chose the weak, verse 27. God chose the ignoble, the people with no status. Here's another one. If you did have status in the world, coming to Christ will probably get rid of it. What? What? You're one of those people now? Christian. That's, that's the way it is. It's considered shameful to trust Christ. So here's the point. It's not where we're, we came from. It's where we're going, by whose grace, with whom, by what means, 
and our final destiny, which is eternal life. Why? Verse 29, I'll give you a preview. So that no one may boast before God. Paul is very clear. Boasting is excluded. It's excluded. We can't boast. We're not better than anybody. We're dead sinners made alive if we know Christ. If you don't know Christ, repent, turn to him. God is the one who regenerates. Let's look at some applications. Three of them. God does not consult man to find wisdom. Now, that should be pretty obvious, but it's surprising how many people don't get that one. God doesn't need us to tell him how to run his own universe. I'll let that sink in. This one is sort of an irony, and I'll explain what I mean by it. If we want true nobility, we will search the scriptures. And I'll show you where the same word for uh, noble is used in Acts. Three, Christians must not be seduced by social status or make false judgments. I met a man in a ministry who was a great uh, football player for the Vikings and a linebacker. And we were doing some apologetics, and I thought, I saw a RC Cola can that had his picture on it. I thought, I bet he doesn't know about that. So I took it to the meeting, and I said, look at it. He took it, dropped his in his thing, closed it, never saw it again. He didn't care what he did for the Vikings. He only cared what God did for him. I didn't get him any more memorabilia. He doesn't even mind. But let's go to Isaiah 45, 21 to 22. Now, this one, let me give you a context before I read it. I mentioned this to a, a couple of people from the church here. Some people, because this is so amazing, assume there had to be two Isaiahs. Because what happened was Cyrus, in the context, was prophesied about by Isaiah, 100 years before his birth. So let me read this. Isaiah 45, 21, 22. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God, And Savior, there's none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Notice that the universal call is found even in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 49, elsewhere, including here. Now, what's the context? I'll have to explain that. The context is about Cyrus the Persian, who is not yet, was not yet born when Isaiah made this prediction. Let me read that to you. If you want to jot this down, or if you're quick, look it up. Isaiah 44, 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, 
quote, end quote, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire, unquote. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. This is Isaiah prophesying before even the deportation of the Jews, the ultimate rebuilding of the temple. Now, this would be a good Sunday school class, but in the 19th century, this Cyrus cylinder was found. Has anybody heard about that or seen a picture of it? And I looked that up in some of my resources. And those who mock Bible prophecy, who say that the characters we read about in the Bible never existed, but they don't say that anymore because it's been proven false, keep getting it wrong. There was a Cyrus, and this is historically accurate. Ezra 1, 1 through 4, and other passages tell about the fulfillment. How is this God's wisdom? God didn't consult anybody. Why would God use the pagan Cyrus, predict his work before he was born, then Cyrus does come on the scene, and the things that are predicted do happen, and then later, archaeology finds, oh yeah, there's this Cyrus cylinder, you can look it up. Because God doesn't need man, God doesn't consult man, but God does carry forth a plan of salvation, and he does so in real time, real space, in history, through the means he chooses so that his existence, his word, everything we know about God is evidentially truth. It really did happen. That's why when we preach the gospel, we preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was done in real time and space. Eyewitnesses all said the tomb was empty. Paul claimed that they were witnesses of these things. The, the earlier apostles and in him, First Corinthians 15, is one born out of time. And so we're not telling people, believe lies, believe errors, believe cartoons, believe whatever's in your mind, believe fiction, have a religious experience, do what feels good. No, the gospel says, believe what really did happen. This is not myth. This is not cleverly devised fables. This is cold, sober truth. So why wouldn't everybody believe it? We talked about that in Sunday school. Because of depravity, sin nature, rebellion, unwillingness to do things God's way or to hear what he had to say. We don't like to be humbled. We would rather find nobility but you can't in most cultures. You're either born into it or you're not. Less so in America. But the fact is, to be a king and priest to God in the eschaton, you have to be redeemed now. Is that right? And that also means giving up whatever status the world has to offer, at least in their eyes, and believing the truth of the gospel. God does things his way. Let's go to Acts 
17, 11, and 12. And I have to admit, the reason I put this slide in there was doing a search on the Greek word that's translated, not many noble. Not many noble. Noble, I didn't mention that. Eugenes, eugenes, is where we get our word eugenics, which is a really bad word, it's evil. That's where eugenics came from. Hitler, we're going to build a master race and we're going to get just the right people. It's evil. There's no master race. There's the saved and the lost. There's dead sinners in Adam and those who believe who are alive in Christ. So eugenics, well-born. Let me make this real simple. In Adam, all die. If you want eugenics, you can't get past that. You're dead. In Christ, all are made alive. Here's the key issue. What do you have to do to be in Adam? Right answer. You're born. What has to happen for you to be in Christ? You're born again. What sort of people are born again? All kinds of people. The one thing they have in common, wherever they came from, is that God rescued a lost sinner through the cross, through the blood. So noble Eugenes is used metaphorically in Acts 17, 11, 12. That's why I decided to include this. We talked about this in Sunday school. It's pretty amazing. So what can we do? Well, you can search the scriptures. Let's read it, Acts 17, 11, and 12. Now, these Jews, those in Berea, were no more noble, often translated noble-minded, which is reflecting a metaphor, than those in Thessalonica. They received, Decomai welcomed the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, not all, but many, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So this means they searched the scriptures. Now, if the scriptures were just fairy tales, uh, an altered state of consciousness, fables, silliness, with nothing going for them, searching the scriptures wouldn't lead you to much. But if the scriptures are true, if the preaching of the apostles and then of Paul, also an apostle, when called in Acts 9, based on cold, sober facts, the scriptures will confront front people with what really happened. That's the means. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Many of them believed. So what happened to those in Thessalonica that were so hostile? They went and found 
Paul and the others and started attacking them somewhere else. Not only will we not believe, we're going to find anybody else that does and stop this. Examining. Does that mean getting a mystical impression? No. Anacrino is the word. And it's a, in a participle here, and it means carefully consider, inquire, search out. Carefully consider, inquire, search out. Do the Old Testament scriptures say anything about a suffering Jewish Messiah? Do these scriptures point to Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God, pre-incarnate one who was with God from all eternity, John 1, 1 through 18, to the prophecies, to the fulfillment, and to the cross, the resurrection that was preached in Acts, or do they not? Examine those things. Examine. Look. Be careful and look. Examine. Many, therefore, believed. Praise God. Have you examined the scriptures? Have you looked into these things? Have you seen that God has actually spoken the truth? And I want to say to you today, it doesn't matter who you are, how bad your life has been or not been, what standing there is to be found in the world. Some, there were some that were nobility, but their new status is based on grace and the work of Christ. Some have nothing going for them. Celsus mock Christians because in their midst were the uneducated, the rabble, the nobodies. But they were kings and priests to God by faith. Well, earlier in Pisidian Antioch, it says that many of the Jews and of God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking to them, who were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And this included um, whoever believed. But in this case, if you look at, just jot this down, Acts 13, 50, but the Jews incited devout women of prominence and leading men of the city and instigated persecution. I just found this this last week in doing my research. So in um, Berea, there were some Greek women of high standing who believed. And in uh, Pisidian Antioch, the same group of people were incited to persecute. Jot that down, Acts 13.50. So what do we learn? It's not who you were. It's not what the world thinks about you. It's not what your friends think about you. It's what we're willing to search. And if we're convicted and it's true, those who believe by God's grace are kings and priests to God ultimately. Let's go on. This applies very pertinently to the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. 
We'll get to this later as I keep preaching through 1 Corinthians. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. That's from the New American Standard. Here's a very simple thing we can all know and remember. We cannot judge what we do not know. If judgment is objective, factual, then we can only judge what can be known. Now, humans can judge by means available to us whether silver is really silver Gold is really gold or fool's gold. Or the piece of granite is not the same as precious metals and so on. We can examine things, find out what they are. But when it comes to Christians relating to each other, what is it that we don't know? Who's more important? Who's the better Christian, the worst Christian, the important, needful Christian, the failure is the Christian? We can look at things. And make all kinds of judgments. Paul said, don't do that before the time. God knows the heart. What we can do is love one another in Christ, accept one another, pray for one another, care for one another, serve one another, and let God make the judgments in the end about who's important. This is going to work a lot of different ways. Honesty would make most of us feel like we're not very good Christians. On the other hand, God's working through people that don't have much going for them. Let me read something I put in my notes. This means that the status of one believer vis-a-vis another in God's eyes is not something we can accurately judge. That is not our business. Jesus warned about this. Acts illustrates it many times, and now Paul tells us not to do it. False judgments show up later in 1 Corinthians, not only at the Lord's table, that's our next slide, but in evaluating the value of gifts. That's my statement. We don't want to make false judgments. We want to be sober-minded about what we cannot know, the motives of somebody else's heart. Be careful in what we claim to know is true. And there's nothing wrong with, in a secular sense, making predictions. People invest in stocks, predict what's going to go up and what's going down, usually not very well. I don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of things we don't know, and people... It's their job to predict what will or won't happen, but we don't know exactly. So um, we certainly don't know somebody else's heart. And we're not very good at knowing our own. The Bible calls God the heart knower. He's called that in Acts. He's called that in Jeremiah. But we do know the terms by which God calls people to himself, and that's the gospel. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the preexistent son, 
the God, God the Son who came into our world, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, who was raised on the third day, who shed his blood, appeared to many witnesses, bodily ascended to heaven, promised that he would come again. We know that's true. Let me just cite this. We go to the last slide and think about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 23. If you want to jot that down, I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 23. About the body of Christ. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body, Paul says, which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become more presentable. Now, in the honor-shame culture of the ancient world, that was revolutionary. Honor was everything. Shame was one thing we absolutely in that world, had to avoid. Being shamed is worse than anything. The prodigal son is an amazing story in that regard because the father allowed himself to be shamed in order to rescue the son, his dishonorable son. With that said, let's go to the passage about the Lord's Supper, which is something we'll have here today. False judgments. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty through 22a, ESV. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. It is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Irony here. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate? Great translation. That's why I chose it. Humiliate those who have nothing. Now, the point is, that's not acceptable. That's, we, can't, we can't treat God's precious sons and daughters in a shameful way. It's, it's astonishing. And Paul is rebuking the church for having done that. A perversion of this leads to the social gospel, assuming that some nationality is the church, and then so on and so forth. This is about the called out ones. Don't humiliate anybody, but preach the gospel. Do you see what I'm talking about here? What Paul's saying? Let me make a statement. The church of God are all those who are the called, 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 26. And they are there because of God's grace, not because of their previous social status. The ultimate honor is to be part of the family of God. Oh, yes. Is there a greater honor, undeserved, to be part of the family of God? 
the redeemed, the cleansed, the washed, the forgiven, the rescued. That's the family of God. To shame anyone who God accepted by grace, by his grace, is seriously disgraceful. And so Paul wrote this letter. Let me cite one more scripture, and then we'll prepare for the Lord's Supper. And that's Romans 11, 10, 11, and 12. And then I'll talk to you about who is invited to the Lord's table to celebrate what he did for them. Romans 10, 11, and 12. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Lots of people get shamed in the pagan world, but believers will not truly ever be put to shame because God honors his own children. For there is no distinction, Romans 10, 11, and 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, if you have not, call upon the name of the Lord. Cry out to him. Turn to him. Believe in him. It doesn't matter if your family rejects you or you look like a fool to the people you work with. It doesn't matter any of that. If you know God, you have true riches and true honor. And those who turn to him are the ones who participate and are invited to the Lord's table. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and then we'll explain communion. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have shown mercy to sinners, kindness to those, all of us, who didn't deserve it, and have made things different than what the world taught us. Lord, if there's any here today who heard this, and now they realize they need you, may today be the day of salvation for them. We thank you that you've done things your way, and not ours. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.